This morning we take a trip into the rare subject matter of spiritual warfare. Most evangelical preachers, most conservative churches prefer to stay in the safer waters of clearly defined doctrines, the epistles that break down neatly into outlines and do and don't commands. They prefer to stay in the narratives which drive a clear moral to the story. But as we are in the book of Daniel with only two sermons left in the book of Daniel, we cannot avoid addressing the mysterious account that's found in Daniel chapter 10. Would you join me in Daniel chapter 10? And together let's dip into the waters and look at this subject matter of spiritual warfare. Perhaps you've already dipped into these waters. Um, Maybe just in studying the Word of God, you've, out of curiosity, have gone in and tried to study this subject matter out yourself. Perhaps you were thrust into these waters where you've experienced some genuine, perplexing spiritual warfare. And um, maybe you, like Daniel, have had some glimpses into the other side. But whatever the case may be, my prayer is that this sermon would make some sense out of it for you. And that we can find some clarity together from the instruction in God's Word. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 10. Now let's walk through this together. Um, Really, Daniel chapter 10 will be somewhat of a diving board for us to jump into the subject matter, but let's look at Daniel's exposure to the other side. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. One was his Hebrew name, and the other, of course, the name of uh, the kingdom that conquered him. It was given to him. And the word was true. And it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris River, I looked up my eyes I looked up my eyes and looked, I'm sorry, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man. Now in these first four verses, I want to just bring your attention to something. We're going to see some very strange things, but note some of the details. Just in these first four verses, specific dates were given. Very specific dates. Month, year, day of the month. We see specific events mentioned. Big events, who was king at the time. Little events, what he did or did not eat, duration of time, was precise, three weeks. We also have the location, generally speaking, and then very specifically, standing not just on the river, but on the bank of the great river, which is Tigris. And all of this indicates a sharp and clear memory that Daniel has in recalling this event. And the details reveal that this is an actual event. This isn't a parable. And it's not even like a dream. He didn't, he, this didn't happen in his sleep. Because of all these details, it shows this was an actual event that took place. That's important for us to realize. And then verse 5 
says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man. Now, the, inter- the, the topic of chapter 10 in my Bible uh, says Daniel's terrifying vision of a man. And the word vision to me would indicate that it's not real. And maybe it is just a dream. Uh, maybe he swooned and this was some vision that came. Um, but we look in verse 7 and 8, we see the word vision is actually used. But more than that, it says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sounds of his words, and I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But notice all that happened before he fell into the deep sleep. And so this is something real that was happening to him. It had physical effects on his body and it had physical effects on the men who were there that couldn't see what Daniel saw. Yet they still experienced something in the moment. They were afraid and they fled. So all this is just assurance to us that this isn't... um, This this isn't a hallucination that Daniel uniquely had. This is real. This is something that's happening in real time. Let's continue and see. Let's go back to verse 5 and see what he saw. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. So fine gold from Uphaz. The Jewish Talmud says there were seven kinds of of gold. They recognize seven kinds of gold. There was gold. There was good gold. There was pure gold, precious gold, gold of Uphaz, which we have here. And then they have purified gold, refined gold, and then the red gold of Purveum. But the gold from Uphaz is the place from which it comes. And the reason it was noted to uh, resemble, the place from which this gold was found resembled flashes of fire fed with pitch. And so we see fire glowing through the gold. This is around his waist. Verse 6, his body was like beryl. Um, beryl is, is an element. It could have come in any color, really. Um, beryllium is what the scientists know it as today. But it was trans, it's, it's translucent. Different words in Scripture, when this stone is described... Different words are attached to this word uh, to this stone: gleaming, sparkling. So this is what his body looked like. It says his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. So face was white lightning that pierces your eyes. You see lightning, you hear it, and then you see it. And when it's really close, it lights up everything in your field of view. White everywhere, and his face was white, piercing Daniel's eyes. This being's eyes itself were like torches of fire. His flesh was like polished, gleaming bronze. It says his arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And so think of, um, think of like the, the, the bright, shining bell of a trumpet or uh, the brass casings of bullets and the, the light shimmering off it. This was his flesh tone. And then it says, the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. 
So many voices wrapped up in one, loud, thunderous. The voice so overwhelmed the maximum possible sensory input that was receivable by Daniel. It sounded like a multitude of voices in just one voice. And look at verse 10. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have, and I have come because of your words. So here we notice that this being was sent to Daniel. He was not sent by Daniel, but he was sent in a direct response to Daniel's prayer and Daniel's study of the word of God. This being came to him. So this is critical, too, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about spiritual warfare today, some of which is taught by churches that you may have exposure to. But we are not in charge of angels. We don't speak to the angels. They speak to us. They bring messengers to us. Whatever being this is, it was sent by God. Daniel was not in control, but he came in response to Daniel's prayer. Now look at verse 13. It says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left without the for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So we have the prince of Persia, singular, and then the kings of Persia, multiple, and they were fighting this spiritual being, they're battling him to prevent him to get to from wherever he was to where he needed to be to give an answer and a message to Daniel. Day one of the prayer, he gets sent out, and then how many days later? 21 days later, he was battling The prince of Persia, kings of Persia, verse 14, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now just jump ahead real quickly and look at verse 20. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But I now, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So we've got at least four categories of spiritual beings represented in this passage. Whoever this is giving the message, Michael on his side who relieved him in battle, the king of Persia or the prince of Persia, and then the plurality of the kings of Persia, and then possibly also the prince of Greece. All of this, some kind of battle that's taking place. And as far as Daniel knows, while all this is happening, he's just praying and not getting an answer from God yet. So we don't have full exposure to everything that's happening in the spiritual realm, but we do experience the consequences of it. And here in Daniel chapter 10, we just see a little insight into kind of what's going on behind the curtain. This is Spiritual warfare. Warfare is the activities that are involved in war or in conflict. And spiritual is the beings that do not possess 
physical bodies. They're real. They have personhood. They have personality. They have names. But they don't possess a physical body like you and I. That's what spiritual warfare is. It's important how we talk about spiritual warfare. Let's let's just do kind of a, a starter study on spiritual warfare. And you'll see different references written down on the screen above me. And I would encourage you to write those down. And that way you can go and kind of dive deeper yourself later on. We're just going to be able to try to provide an overview right now. First of all, let's look at the inception of spiritual warfare. When did it start? Where did it come from? Um, Well, I can turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. That's the book right before Daniel, actually. So you might feel comfortable turning there as well. Here we see kind of the start of it, but we start first with the king of Tyre. Verse 20, uh, chapter 28 of Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. So this king had more wisdom than Daniel, but no secret secret was hidden from him. Your wisdom and your understanding have made you wealth for yourself, and you have gathered gold and silver into the treasuries. And by your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, but your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you make your heart like a heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. And they shall thrust you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God? In the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. A lot of details included in there. There's a real human being. There's a person who exalted themselves by the blessings that had been given to them. And God punished him for uh, for him exalting himself, for his pride. But let's continue in verse 11. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man... Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now we see a slightly different message. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now we know the king of Tyre was not in the garden of Eden. So what do we have going on here? Well, what we have here is the prince of Tyre was kind of a human echo of Lucifer's origin. Um, just like David was a type of the Savior who was to come, the king of Tyre here, the prince of Tyre, was an echo of Satan who had already come. And so by looking at the life of the king of Tyre, we can see into the heart motives of Satan. And we see a parallel here as he continues. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of, the, of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed 
guardian cherub. I placed you. You were in the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. It's really a beautiful picture that we see. God created this cherub who was described as having all these precious stones set in gold. And then he walked among the glory of God. So the glory of God would shine through this being, Lucifer. And his glory would be exalted through this being. But then unrighteousness was found in him. Verse 16 says, In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He was supposed to guard the glory of God, but he became envious of the glory of God and wanted to uh, have the glory of God for himself. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. And we can continue on. But what we see is this was the start of Satan as we know him. This was the beginning of spiritual warfare. In Revelation chapter 12, specifically in verse 4, we see another account of this taking place where Satan is described as a great dragon. And as he fell, it says his tail took a third of the stars with him. In the Old Testament specifically, stars are another recognition of angelic beings. And so when Satan fell, he took a third. We don't know how many spiritual beings there are, but we know when Satan fell, he took a third of them with him. These are the unclean spirits, the demons, the dark angels that we see in Scripture. So that's the beginning of the spiritual warfare. But let's look at the conclusion of the spiritual warfare. And this is important. If you know where to look, you can see both the beginning and the end of spiritual warfare. But this is a good thing. Uh, Because we've got to know how it ends. It it makes the in-between bearable for us. And life can be difficult. So it's important to look at where it begins and look at where it ends... You know, uh, two Sundays ago, and please, please forgive me. If, I don't think I've shared this illustration. But two Sundays ago, I was watching Super Bowl, was it 54, I think? The Chiefs won it last year. I was enjoying it, and I was watching it. And I was with Aaron the first time, when it was live. Remember that, Aaron? My blood pressure was about ready to pop the top of my skull off. I mourned every lost yard. I cursed every interception. I, I, I just, I just, I lived and breathed with every inch that football went down the field. And when it lost, I thought all was lost. And the, the Chiefs mounted a nearly miraculous comeback right at the end. There was not nearly enough time left, but somehow we did it. And we were victorious. And I think, Aaron, you made brownies that night. You know, I, I still have. I wrapped that brownie in napkin. It sits on my cabinet as a reminder of the day. That the Chiefs won the Super Bowl in my lifetime. But I was watching it again. And I was so enjoying the show. I was not stressed. I was not vexed. I was not sweating. My blood pressure remained within a semi-healthy level. Because I knew how it was going to end. And the fact that they were losing for most of the game 
made the story that much more exciting. And this is important for us because in our life, the losses sometimes make for a better story. The loss that you might currently be suffering is just setting you up for a glorious comeback. And we know there's going to be the comeback. And whatever loss that we could experience in this short 70 years that we have to spend on the planet is nothing compared to the weight of eternal glory that waits for us. And we know that it's waiting for us. We know it's going to come because we see how the story ends. So we see the conclusion of spiritual warfare in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Here we see that Satan is released and he wreaks havoc on the earth one last time. But then he's thrown into the pit. And that's the last time we ever, ever hear anything about Satan again. And so we know how it's going to conclude. And we see other passages that describe this. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. uh, God says that Satan will bruise Christ's heel, but Christ will crush Satan's head. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that through death, Christ destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says that God disarmed rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame and triumphing over them in Christ, specifically the work that Christ did on the cross. So what we see in this is that you are not the agent of Satan's destruction. God is. And there's a, there's a big difference between a lot of Um, fanatic type churches that really try to plunge into spiritual warfare. You are not the instrument of Satan's destruction. God is. Most specifically, Christ is. More specific than that, Christ in accomplishing the gospel is the agent of Satan's destruction. Note also that we can't even say you're not even the center of Satan's motives. We like to insert ourselves and think the whole world revolves around us. But we see this battle started long before we were here. And most likely it's going to end long after we're all in glory. Satan's motives are, is his own glory. And that means every one of you, you're just collateral damage. If he can destroy your faith. He knows he can't destroy God, but maybe he can separate you from your faith. And also, I believe that we see, we know we're created in the image of God. And Satan hates the image of God. And so he hates you. And he wants to destroy you. We see throughout all of ancient history and all these world religions, and even right now in secular, secularism and modern history, the abnormal desire to destroy babies. They were sacrificed to the gods in ancient times. And today they've been, the practice, the horrific practice of killing babies is described as abortion and a choice. But it is not. And even now, who would have thought in our lifetime now, they even want to call killing a baby after it's born. They still want to call that abortion. And we need to take a stand against that. And I think the drive behind it is satanic. I think the drive behind it is Satan hates to see the image of God in innocent babies and in humanity at large. And if he can wipe out as much as possible, he will. You know, on that back table right next to the the shoebox uh, uh, 
the collection for the, for the children. There's also a flyer that I want you to pick up and take with you. It's the Walk of Life that's happening in October out at Greg Park. You can sign up. You can support it. There's a, a ministry we have here in town, Heart to Heart. And Diane runs that. And money goes to that. And it's designed to help these women who are contemplating abortion. It's trying to save a life. And they're getting better every year. They're, they're getting better and better every year. And so I want you to pick that up at least... Pick it up to pray for it, but possibly also sponsor it and support it. But we see both the beginning and the end of spiritual warfare, and humans are the collateral damage. Let's look at some examples of spiritual warfare quickly here. We see a lot of different examples of spiritual warfare in Scripture. Uh, in two places in the Gospels, we see angels coming to minister to Christ after he fasts for 30 days and he's tempted by Satan and he resists the temptation and he comes out victorious in his weakness angels come down and minister to him and then there was a second time where angels came and ministered to him do you remember when that was on the cusp of his death when he was in the garden and he was weeping and crying and praying out to God an angel came and ministered to him there and so we see positive spiritual warfare in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10, we see positive spiritual warfare. And Christ is talking about the children. He's saying, let the little children come to me. And he says, because they have angels in heaven which stand before my Father. And this is where we get the idea of guardian angels from. It's, it's strange, but for some reason there are angels that are identified in correlation with people. And Jesus recognized that these children have angels that stand in some sort of representation before the Father. And so there we see spiritual warfare taking place in some way, positively speaking. In Numbers chapter 22, we have the famous story of Balaam's donkey. There we see spiritual warfare. You have a prophet that wants to go and do wickedness against the people of God. So God sends an angel to destroy him. And Balaam's riding his donkey down a narrow path that he can't turn to the right or to the left. And the donkey can see the angel, but Balaam can't. And the donkey is frightened and wants to choose a different path. And first he goes out into a field, and eventually he runs into a bush, and then he crushes Balaam's leg, and Balaam curses the donkey. But the donkey could see something there that Balaam couldn't. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23, we have the story of Elisha on a hilltop, the prophet surrounded by an army ready to take his life. And his servant says, What are we going to do? And Elijah said, don't worry at all. Those who are with us are far more than those who are against us. And, and the servant is saying, me and Elisha, there's two of us. We're surrounded by an army. And Elisha prayed and God opened his servant's eyes. And he could see that the mountains were full of the army of God. You know, it's interesting that that story and others similar that we find in Scripture... We see current uh, modern-day accounts of that. Billy Graham tells a story, a similar story of a missionary in Africa who was surrounded by um, natives who were ready to kill him. And it was just him and his wife, and they're on the floor in their, in their uh, bungalow praying to God to save them, and they never were attacked. A year later, finally, that tribe was converted to Christ. And he went and he asked them, that night, a year ago, when you were surrounding us, why didn't you come in? Why didn't you kill us? And he said, well, we would have, but there were, you had too many armed guards. We couldn't get past them. Spiritual warfare. You just look up some stories from uh, the Six-Day War in 1967 when Israel was attacked on four sides 
It should have been wiped off the map. And instead, the war was concluded in six days. And they tripled their land size. They got the West Bank. They got the Temple Mount. They reunited Jerusalem. And there's some amazing stories that take place in that time to indicate supernatural, spiritual warfare. In Ezekiel chapter 9, there's idolatry in the land. And God sends an angel throughout the city. He says, put a mark on everyone that's mourning and groaning for the abominations that are taking place. And then he sent other angels after to slay anyone that didn't have the mark. So we see spiritual warfare. One last one in Acts chapter 12. And this isn't all of them. This is just some of them. Acts chapter 12, verse 21 through 23. Herod stands up and he gives a a speech. And it's so good that the people start saying he's got the tongue of a God. And God didn't like that. So God sent an angel to strike Herod with worms. And he died. So we see examples of spiritual warfare throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, positive and negative, and in our, in our, in our in current history as well. So just quickly, some observations about spiritual warfare. Perhaps you've written some down already just through what we've discussed so far. Um, we know that since Satan took down a third of the stars with him, that there are twice as many righteous beings as there are wicked spiritual beings. That's good to know. It appears that they are... That there's. There's another dimension that is around us. It's not like if we traveled far enough, we would get to heaven. You have to break through to another plane, and somehow that's present. It overlaps this plane, this multidimensional, and these beings are multidimensional. That's why sometimes we can't see them, but sometimes we can. We see that their weapons tend to correspond to natural observations that can be explained in different ways. For instance, when Herod was struck By the angel, he struck him, but he struck him with worms. And we know historically, he, in fact, died of kidney damage that was complicated by, I hate to gross you out, but this is history, maggot-infested gangrene of, of his loins. But this is, the angel struck him, and that's how he died. We see it in scripture, we read about it in history. They've got a natural explanation for it, but we see what was going on on that other overlapping Dimension. Another example of this is those angels that put the mark on the people's heads in Ezekiel chapter 9. I believe this was the Babylonian capture of Jerusalem in 597 B.C. So there we see the angels striking dead those who were idolatrous. And yet the sword, so to speak, was human enemies that came in and slayed them. And so we see corresponding natural explanations to the supernatural underlying reality. Um, Another observation about um, spiritual warfare and going back to Daniel chapter 9, we see that um, it seems that these beings have geographic assignment. You had Persia, you had Greece. Even in Revelation, when you look at the churches in Revelation, the letter is addressed to the angel of the church of Smyrna, Ephesus, and Philadelphia. So it seems that both positive and negative, both righteous and wicked spiritual beings have some kind of regional assignment or perhaps a political assignment. And then, of course, we see that there is this mysterious human connection. There is interaction that's possible. Real quickly, the elements of 
spiritual warfare? What, what, what is it? What, what are the actual elements? What do they use? Um, what's at play here? Well, if we're back in Daniel chapter 10, we see certainly that prayer is one of the elements of spiritual warfare. Prayer is. And then this is often overlooked, but information is. He was studying the Word of God. He got some information. And then God sent an angel to further give him more information. But truth, truth is a powerful element in spiritual warfare. Um, Another one is our choices, our perception, our emotions, our doubts. Remember when Jesus told Peter, Satan wants to... Sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. So there's spiritual warfare going on there. But what actually was happening? Peter was making some choices, some wrong choices. Peter was doubting. Peter was fearing. Peter was abandoning his faith. And yet that was, those were the elements of the spiritual warfare that he was engaged in. And then also we see that sometimes physical illness or disability or even death are part of spiritual warfare. Not always, but sometimes. You see Jesus, when he would heal, um, heal People in, in the Gospels, someone would come mute. Sometimes he would cast out a demon, they would be healed. Sometimes he would heal their physical body. So not every physical illness is a demon, but sometimes demonic oppression is manifest in physical disability or illness or even death. This we also see in the instructions on communion in 1 Corinthians and in James where it says some of you are ill because you have sins that are unconfessed. Now, we're running out of time, but I want to talk about your engagement with spiritual warfare. And this is important. This is important. You know, my children recognize that I'm wise in our house, and so sometimes there's conflict, and they need me to resolve it. And I come in, and I have the wisdom of Solomon, and I split the baby, so to speak, and solve the issue. And one such important issue the other day was Jackson and Abram were discussing the differences between wrestling and real wrestling. And of course what they were talking about was like WWF is when I was a kid, I think now it's WWE wrestling, and then like Olympic wrestling. So I sat down and I showed the difference to them. But one of the things they noted was that the fake wrestling, which by the way, do you know there's one of us in our church, that used to be a professional wrestler. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but he did a backflip off the top rope. That was his finishing move. I think he even wrestled Macho Man Randy Savage. I'll let you figure it out who it is. But anyway, it wasn't later. That's all I'll tell you. But uh, that looks so much more spectacular. A thumb to the eye, chair to the back of the head. The referee drop kicking one of the opponents. That looks pretty spectacular. But I know when I was in high school, I really wanted to be friends with all the, the wrestlers, the real wrestlers. Because in a street fight, they were always the most effective. And I wanted them to be my friend so that I would have that protection. And when we look at our engagement with spiritual warfare, there's two different views you can really take here. And a lot of what we see about spiritual warfare taught today in some of these um, kind of ecstatic churches really is the WWF version of of spiritual warfare. It's not effective. It's not real. But it's flashy. Your engagement with spiritual warfare. Is going to be more like that Olympic wrestler. He's wearing a silly looking leotard. They're rolling around on the mat. But. There's power. There's danger. There's effect. So what what are our. What is our engagement with it. And I. You know I, I'm sorry. I wish I had more time to unpack this. 
But please write down Ephesians 6. There you see what spiritual warfare looks like. And ours is not to attack, but ours is to withstand. Ours is not to pursue, but ours is to resist. James chapter 4 and verse 7, write that down. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We don't pursue the devil, we resist the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're putting on the armor of God. And we're doing everything to stand and to withstand. And we're arming ourselves with God's strength. And God's gospel. And you look through that in Ephesians chapter 6. And you see prayer. And you see God's word. And you see obedience. These are the humble things that real spiritual warfare engages. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We're going to close in a song that we haven't sung before. But I think really captures what we are describing right here. That the battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. We rest in Christ. And you think, okay, what well, is that really? Is that really what spiritual warfare is? Let's look back again one last time in Daniel chapter ten, and we see some really—they seem like New Testament principles. In verse nineteen, uh, verse eighteen, and again, one having the appearance of a man touched me, and he strengthened me. And listen to what he said: he strengthened him with his message. And what he said: "O man, greatly loved, fear not." Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. He hearkens Daniel back to the love of the Father for his children. That's where we find our strength. That's where we find our peace. That's where we find our courage. You know, think about the worship. That we, when, we lo- led, when we led this service with worship, that was amazing, wasn't it? That was powerful, wasn't it? And who were we addressing? We were addressing God. If you find yourself under some kind of spiritual duress, you see some kind of interaction with dark forces, when that happens to me, I'm not addressing them. I'm addressing God. I start to worship. I start to pray. I start to to set my heart, my hope, my love in God. And that, that draws the presence of God. That stirs up the spirit of God within me. And while I might not be any match for dark forces, they're no match for God. And the closer I am to God the more defeated they are. And I don't lift a finger. I let God do the lifting.